0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number eight of the Jason Juliet podcast. I'd like to take a little bit of a different approach today with the introduction. I don't have any major announcements, so I would like to introduce my guest right away. But I would also like to make a short, I guess you would call it a public service announcement that if you happen to know anybody who is currently struggling with some medical issues or that you think might benefit from this episode, I'd really like you to... Perhaps just give them the option of listening to it and giving them some details. My guest today is Dr. Shanoa Medina, and Dr. Medina has been out of med school for 29 days, very fresh at the time that we did this interview, and myself being about three months away from graduating from nursing school. It was a very interesting conversation back and forth, but Dr. Medina did go over some really great advice for anybody who goes to the doctor. She really just breaks down some very basic things that everybody can do to get more out of their appointments with their doctors, to get more of their questions answered, more tools so that doctors can make better decisions for their patients, so... If there's anybody that is struggling right now, there's, there's some really great advice in here that I, that I think just everybody should know about. So, so please feel free to share this with some other people. Um, Dr. Medina did a fantastic job. She is a brilliant young woman, fantastically articulate. We were joking around. I was telling her, I was like, "You've got to get a book written or something." Like we need we need another reason to to, to get you back on here and and to hear more of what you have to say. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Shanoa Medina. We're live with Dr. Shanoa Medina. Welcome onto the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. Happy to. So I want to jump right in. You've been a doctor for how long now?
1: So I guess officially, in my capacity as a as an intern, twenty nine days at this 29 point. Twenty
0: nine days. So you are fresh out of med school, fresh and we've out. actually we we've been friends for a little bit. So I, I've wanted to have you on because, as some of the listeners know, I'm a semester away from graduating from nursing school, and I've never really talked to a med student about how they felt about medical school. And I I thought that it would be interesting to compare those. And I thought a lot of my friends would that are also in nursing school would appreciate the perspective of a doctor and and just see how they sort of compare. So first of all, why medicine? Like, Like what was the thing that first drove you to think, you know, of all the things I can do in the world, I want to be a doctor?
1: That's an awesome question. So the very first thing I wanted to be when I was little was an astronaut. Um, yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, so my mom and my grandma would buy me books about space and I was always obsessed about it. Um, Carl Sagan was a hero of mine as a child. Yeah. Yeah, I was, but you know, as you get older, it turns out that nonlinear calculus is not as easy as it looks when you're just having these fantasies about putting on a spacesuit and walking on the moon. <laughs> so so I had yeah. to sort of uh, correct course a little bit. Um, but for me, really, it was um, when I was young, my mother was diagnosed with a very rare autoimmune disease. And at the time, I mean, even still now, there's no cure. There's really just sort of symptom management. But at the time in particular, it was very difficult to even get a diagnosis for her. And none of her doctors really knew what was going on. And I just saw this woman who had been so strong and so beautiful and so vibrant deteriorate very rapidly over a short period of time. And then make what also seemed like a very miraculous recovery. And so that, for me, sort of opened the doorway into medicine and wanting to unlock those secrets.
0: Wow. How old were you when when all that happened?
1: It started when I was six.
0: When you were six? Yeah. Wow. Th- that's a very early age to shift. So you've wanted to be a doctor since you were six years old.
1: I'm a precocious little one, right? So <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know... It's one of those things. Like when you're young, you're always being asked, "What do you want to be? What do you want to be?" And there's always the standard. Like, I want to be a ballerina. I want to be a fireman. I want to be a police officer. You know, these sort of either um, entertainers or people that are famous or people that are seen as helpers in the community. You know, when you say you want people that are looked
0: up to in one way or another, right? Right.
1: Right. And so, again, still still wanting to walk on the moon for a little while as a young person, Um, you know, that really shifted for me because it was so poignant and it was so. it came about so quickly, you right. know, and I didn't have a lot of time to adjust and it was just sort of this is the new normal and wanting to, you know, I think anyone wants to help their mom or their dad, anyone wants to help their family Absolutely. member who's suffering. And so you kind of see the people who are there helping and you're like, okay, well then I wanna do that thing.
0: Right, so once you, once you left high school, how did you navigate like, okay, I'm gonna have to spend this many years to here, this many years here and where do I wanna go? How did that all happen? Because so, your 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 story about where you went to med school is incredibly interesting.
1: So I took somewhat of a circuitous route <laughs> to medicine. So it's something that I always knew I wanted to do, uh, but I kind of took a very long meandering road to get there, and I have no regrets about that. So I went to uh, college. I went to Cornell, and which again sort of fulfilled some of that like Carl Sagan you know fantasy Absolutely. for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so there was that. I used to actually study in the Space Sciences Building just to feel a little bit closer to it. Wow. Yeah, nerd. Um, you never really let go of those things, right?
0: Right. You shouldn't. I don't know. Some people might, but you, you definitely shouldn't.
1: I'm, I'm glad I didn't. Um, and so then after that, I actually went to work for an educational nonprofit program. And so it was a program that I was in as a, as a child. It's called Prep for Prep. It's based out of New York City. And it helps students from economically disadvantaged backgrounds um do academic training and helps them get scholarships to private school. And so that's ultimately a program that I was in when I was younger. And it really sort of changed the course of, you know, my life and my educational trajectory for sure. And so when I graduated, I really felt that it was important for me to give back to them because there were so many other people that had helped me along the way, and I wanted to make sure that I was giving back and helping the next generation. Paying it forward. Absolutely. That's
0: awesome. Good for you. I didn't. I had no idea that you did that. Yeah. So, how long were you involved in that program, and then what's what were the steps that you took afterwards?
1: Uh, so I was there for two years. Uh, And then from there, I actually went to work for a private school for one year, uh, doing admissions for them as well. Uh, But ultimately, I really missed science. And so that was something that, you know, I have a degree in biology. It was something I spent, you know, many years of my life, many hours in labs uh, doing, and I wanted to get back into it. And I had a friend that was working at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And he said to me, you know, I think this place would be really good for you. Why don't you submit your resume and see what happens and I was like oh okay great yeah sure
0: right I'll yeah. just
1: I'll just just
0: Sloan Kettering no, yeah. no, no big deal I'm yeah. sure they let everybody in right of course
1: <laughs> of course open door yeah uh so I said okay you know why not and he and I had been friends for a long time we had gone to college together so I said okay you know let me give this a try and you know five interviews later I'm not kidding five rounds of interviews later Jeez. I was hired there, and so I stayed at Sloan-Kettering for seven years, and then I ended up going to medical school after that.
0: Wow. So, tell us about medical school.
1: Okay, so...
0: tell. Let's start out with where, and let's start out with, uh, with why you chose to go there.
1: Okay, so... You know, if you're if you're doing the math here, I am quite a number of years past college <laughs> graduation here when I'm talking about applying to medical school, and I did not do an intervening master's degree or post back or sort of any other advanced degree after getting my bachelor of science from my undergraduate. So I was at Sloan Kettering for seven years, seven and a half, um, in two different departments, and so at one point I was like, okay, you know, I'm ready. I want to apply to medical school. I know this is what I want. I applied to a bunch of different programs, both in the U S and in the Caribbean, uh, because I was a non-traditional student and you have to be cognizant of what areas and arenas are open to you. And so going as a non-traditional student, going as an older student, um, and not having an intervening degree, you know, of a master's or a PhD or something else. Um, a lot of programs look at you as sort of a risk. They're like, Okay, well you you know, you went to school at this point in time and you did this, but can you still do these things? Can you still study? Do you still know how to focus and how to get things done?
0: Right. And that, so that was something I was nervous about going back to school too, but I, I know exactly what you mean. I didn't go back till I was thirty three. And it's like being an older student, sometimes you're looked at funny by institutions that you're applying to. They're like, Well, why didn't you do this when you were twenty two? It's yeah. well, I didn't know then. <laughs>
1: No, and I also, I I don't think I would have appreciated it as much. I'm not I'm not saying that about anyone else. I think that everyone walks their own journey and they do what's best for them. And I think that's incredible. But for me, I definitely feel like at the end of college, I needed a little bit of time in the real world. I'd been in this rarefied air of academia. You know, I'd been in school since I was three. I felt that it was time for me to be in the actual real world. Right.
0: To try and apply some of this knowledge you've been pouring into your brain for, you know, 3 decades.
1: <laughs> right. Although although I did end up taking off more time than I had initially anticipated. Okay. But ultimately ended up being worth it. And so, uh when I looked at schools, particularly, you know, there's a couple of schools in the Caribbean which have a long history of accepting US students and then they do a lot of their rotations, and then they end up getting residencies back in the United States. And so I had uh, quite a few friends who had gone to St. George's University, which is where I ultimately ended up enrolling. And it was sort of a really positive environment. They tended to have a little bit um, more of an, not quite an older student population, but they definitely were more friendly towards non-traditional students Okay. Um, and had a little bit more, you know, set up in the way of academic support and other things that they might Feel that you would need if you had been out of, you know, an educational arena for a long period of time. So instead
0: of like doubling down on the weeding people out, they're actually trying to support and nurture the students they have coming into their school. Right. That's awesome. So you've been uh, a doctor now. Did you say 29 days? 29 days. That is amazing. We're almost hitting a month.
1: Almost.
0: We're going to hit a month pretty soon. Congratulations. So
1: close. Thank you.
0: So this is something that you've wanted to do your entire life and now... Since you were six years old, you wanted to be a doctor, and as of 29 days ago, you're a doctor. What's that feel like?
1: I have to be perfectly honest with you. It's still very surreal.
0: Hasn't quite sunk in.
1: No. Even though I'm there every day, I have on my long white coat. You know, I have my ID that says MD. It still feels like, you know, I'm the medical student because you've been in that role for so long. So it's, it's when I first was there and they're like, oh, Dr. Medina. I was like, who? (laughs) <laughs> i was looking behind me like oh there's another dr medina here that's so cool and then i was like oh wait they yeah. meant me um so it was really really incredible i definitely i called my mom that first day and i was like mom you're never gonna guess what she's like yes i actually it's july 1st i can 100 percent guess what <laughs> she's like i've got two brain cells to rub together right. thank you but right
0: um, yeah that thing you've been talking about for like <laughs> since your ever. entire life yeah yeah i know that's today yeah
1: But, uh, but it's still, it still feels very surreal and it still feels like such a privilege every day. I'm very grateful.
0: Awesome. So I want to shift gears a little bit now that you've been a doctor for 29 days, has your perspective, and now that you've been in it for a while, you know, you, you have a certain perspective towards the profession when you're getting into it, but then once you're in it and you're educated in it for so long, and now that you've actually become a doctor, do you still have the same perspective on it? Or are you still just excited about it? Or were there things that that shifted in, you know, the realizations that you had about the profession as a whole while you were going through med school?
1: Sure. So I think, you know, having worked in a hospital for, for a number of years and, and I worked in several different hospitals because I was at Sloan Kettering and then when I was there, I was a liaison to two other hospitals in the New York City area as well. So I got to see, you know, private, public city, HHC.
0: Wow. So you had a nice, you had great experience then going into that. That's awesome. Okay.
1: I did. I didn't. And, and I think, you know, for me, I think why I'm still excited is that I went in eyes wide open. You know, I think anyone who wants to pursue a you know a career in medicine in any arena, you know, you go in there and you have this idealistic view and then You've also, you know, watched TV your whole life and you think that it's like this glamorous, like, you know, you're right. being wheeled in through the doors and you're doing chest compressions and, you know, you're saving lives right. uh, and all the paperwork and all the drudgery and all the administrative tasks that you do sort of are are left out of Grey's Anatomy and Scrubs and other, you know, ER and other shows that yeah, you... Yeah, and,
0: and so are a lot of the bodily fluids, not to be too graphic, <laughs> but I mean, that that's a big part that is left out of every television show and, every, you know, there's no... Yeah. Anyway, let's just, <laughs> I'll, I'll skip that. I'll, I'll leave that alone. Anyway, you keep going.
1: Um, and yeah, and yes, you, you would know as, as much as I would in, in terms of the realities of the sights and the senses and the smells and the, the feels of things that are, you know, brought into sharp relief when you're actually on the wards versus studying your books. Right. But I think that, as your role, you know, evolves, your thought process involves because when you start and you're sort of just in classrooms and you're in laboratories, it's a very controlled and sterile environment. You know exactly what is expected of you. You know what you need to do. And then you move into so the setup of medical school—it's a four-year system, and so the first two years are your basic sciences. So that's your classroom learning, your lectures, your labs, your small groups, your um, simulations, and all of the things like that. And then your second two years are your clerkships and your rotations, where you're actually on the floors, seeing patients. You're part of the medical team, um, you know, and you're given increasing responsibility as you go forward. You know, the first day of your third year no one is expecting you to do anything other than try and find where the bathroom is, um, <laughs> you know, gratefully. <laughs> um, but by the end of their f- the fourth year, you know, they expect you to have, you know, a, a fundament of, of knowledge there. And so then you start as a resident and you're really not different from where you were when you finished the end of that fourth year. But all of a sudden you're given this title and now new responsibilities are expected of you, rightfully so. right? Um, but so I think that, you know, one of the things I didn't, I didn't appreciate nearly as much as I do now is that as a medical student, I got to spend so much more time face to face with my patients. Okay. And so I think that, you know, we have a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of rules. There's a lot of documentation, paperwork, things like that that need to happen. But. Every minute that I'm writing behind a computer or making a phone call to get a pre-authorization for something from an insurance company, I'm not at bedside with my patient and their families. And so that was something that I I didn't realize would be so different um, from being a medical student when you really genuinely have much more time to do that. So for everyone in their third and fourth year. You know, spend as much time as you can with your patients at bedside. You learn so much from them and they're really lovely.
0: And there, there, there may actually be a parallel to draw there between nursing school, because even as a nursing student, you go in and you have one patient that you're taking that day or right. maybe two that you have to. So you're with that patient a lot. You're doing full assessments and you're looking for things Like you're supposed to look for everything. You don't really know what you're looking for, but you just know that you're supposed to look for everything. And there have been several scenarios and cases where nursing students end up discovering something that, you know, flap the butterfly wings and, you know, down the lane a hundred times, you know, like all of a sudden they're the ones that lead to almost kind of diagnosing an illness based on this little thing that they saw and then the doctor knows about it and then the doctor's looking at it and he's going. And so it's really cool to see how that time with the patient pays off. And once you become a nurse, it, it, it's the same kind of thing. Well, now you've got five, six, seven patients and, you know, you're, you're at the computer the whole time charting and right. you're, you're in the room for 30 seconds and then you got to try and give the meds as quick as you can, scan the meds, get out, do your assessment, chart your assessment. And I mean, a lot of it, it it's, it's very similar to what you're talking to. So it's, it, it's good to see that it's at least uh, in the spotlight, that it's, it's it's known and it's becoming more salient that more face-to-face time with the patients is going to save more lives.
1: Absolutely. That's 100% correct.
0: So, well, as somebody who's been a doctor for 29 days now, this is going (laughs) to be, like, like, it's so funny. You're going to listen to this two years from now and be like, oh, my God. You
1: know, uh, it's it's my friend uh, Megan's birthday. She lives in London, and so, and I'm a terrible person because I haven't messaged her yet, and I'm, you know, racing daylight at this point, but the 29th is a very auspicious day because she's a wonderful person, and she was born today, so... I'll call her after this and let her know. But yes, the, the 29th day of being a doctor shall definitely be indelibly marked on my, right. my mind.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. So now that you've been one, what are some of the things, because what I do try to do with this podcast is you know talk to people who have information that I think more people should have. What do you wish patients knew more? Like, what do you see patients doing that, negatively impacts their health more so than, than anything else? You know, like what are the things you really wish you could drive home to patients that you seem to be battling against the most?
1: That is an excellent question. I think if you can find someone to fully answer that, we'll probably have a lot of these problems (laughs) solved. Right. Right. Um, but one of, I think the biggest things where I see for, for everyone, you know, my, myself included, for all of us, we know what we need to do. Lifestyle modifications are the foundation of, of health. Okay. You know, so eating properly, cutting out, you know, fried foods and sugars and alcohols and excess of anything, right? Anything right. in excess is is bad. Although, you know, Orson Welles would say, you know, everything in moderation, including moderation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, you know, that's, that's one of the places where, you know, you grow up doing a certain thing or, you know, it could be cultural. It could be the foods that you're used to eating. It could just be preference, but it becomes very difficult at times to change your entrenched behaviors. But those things are literally acting against your best wishes. And so I see a lot of patients who know what they're supposed to do. They know they're supposed to take their medications for high blood pressure or for diabetes. They know they're not supposed to eat this thing or do this thing, but they do it anyway. And I understand that we're all human. We are all going to have lapses. But the biggest thing is that I need you to be honest with me. I think that sometimes patients, you know, they don't want to tell you that, yes, I ate the whole pizza. Or no, (laughs) I didn't take my medication, not for one or two days. Like I didn't take it for two weeks. And so the numbers don't lie. You show up in my office or on my floor, inpatient. I know that you haven't been doing what you're supposed to because you wouldn't be here. (laughs) Right. Um, But, you know, so I think one of the most important things is you got to be honest with your doctor because I can't help you if I don't really know what I'm dealing with. And whatever it is, you know, I'm not here to judge you. That is not my role. That is not any of my interest. I'm only here to help you. But I can only do that to the best of my ability if you give me all the information that I need to try and synthesize the best way to move forward with you.
0: Right honesty. You need the whole story.
1: I need the whole story. So
0: do you feel like if you had to like throw out an estimate, I mean, do you feel like patients aren't being honest with you more often than not? Do you feel like it's it's that common of a problem where you're just being, well, for lack of a better word, lied to?
1: So I don't I, I think, you know, saying that someone is lying to you, I don't I don't mean perhaps the perhaps
0: con- bending the truth, maybe not breaking it. Right. But sort of wording things to make their story sound a little bit better.
1: Right. I don't think that there's any malice intended with it. I think that everyone just wants to be seen in the best light possible. And so you're going to underestimate, you know, the bad things and overestimate the good things. And I understand that instinct a hundred percent, but you know, I think that when we're dealing particularly, you know, we have such a huge issue with diabetes in this country. And you know, if you're telling me that you're not taking this medication or you're not doing this or you're eating these different things, I've had so many patients that have come in and they're losing toes, they're losing feet, they're losing legs yep. for something that ultimately could be preventable and is 100% treatable. Just, yeah, just put your sugar down. And I know that it's not easy. You know, I know that it's not easy to say no to that cake when it's your daughter's birthday or yeah. saying no to those desserts when it's Christmas time and it's family and people are coming to visit or there's a holiday or there's, you know, an event. But at the end of the day, you want to preserve people's health the best way that you can. And so... You know, Again, like I said, lying sounds like a, a condemnation, and that's not what I mean in any way. It's just that I want you to tell me the whole truth. There's no judgment. None of the doctors are judging you. None of the nurses are judging you. We just need to know the story so that we can help you the best way that we can.
0: Right. You need all the pieces of the puzzle to be able to put it together. Right. Awesome.
1: Um, and And one other thing that I would say in yeah. that arena is that if you are on medications and i know these medications they've got x's in them and z's in them they sound like they were made up by some science fiction person i literally remember reading an article about naming different you know new medications and drugs that come to market and it just i literally felt like they were taking boggle and just shaking up a bunch of <laughs> letters and picking whatever order they went in. Uh, so I never expect patients to remember all of those things, particularly if patient has multiple comorbidities and they're on a lot of medications. Right, right, I don't want you to remember all of them, but either write them down somewhere or bring them with you. And that is so invaluable to me because knowing what you are on at home and what you are not on at home can absolutely help direct treatment. And it can also even help direct, you know, us to figure out what might be going wrong with you. If you come in and you're having, you know, X, Y, and Z symptoms, and I look at your medication list, and I'm like, oh, that's a known side effect of this particular medication. You know, I know that I can kind of make quick moves towards that. Um, And if you have a chronic condition and you come in and there's an exacerbation and I know what medications you're on, well, then I know either that regimen isn't working or we need to increase the doses or change something so that we can move forward. So the best advice that I would give to people is like, if you are on medications, write it down, keep a list in your phone, keep a list, a written list, or just bring the medications with you to your doctor's visits because it's so helpful to us.
0: That's actually a really good recommendation to just put it in your phone. I mean, you just put it in a note on your phone so that you always have it with you. And then, you know, heaven forbid something bad happens, you know, like an accident happens, you get hit by a bus and wind up in the emergency room boom, it's there. It's just always there for the doctors.
1: Yes. But also, you know, when you have older patients and when you're dealing with a geriatric population who may not be as tech savvy, you know, a lot of them still carry address books or they carry notepads or things that they do to keep, you know, calendars and things like that. So even if they write them down or again, you know, just keep a Ziploc bag and put all of them in it and bring it to us, whatever method or whatever way works best for you, as long as we know what those medications are, it helps us so much.
0: Right. So that sort of leads in nicely to one of the questions I wanted to ask you, which is your opinion in general um, of the pharmaceutical companies. There's obviously a lot of good things that they do. And there's obviously some things that they do that could be considered questionable. And there's I think that there's a lot of strong public opinions about the pharmaceutical industry. Obviously, you know, it, it doesn't take long to turn on the news and see big pharma that and big pharma this. So how do you work with pharmaceuticals, how do, you, how do you navigate trying to put people on things? Do you attempt to convince them to make lifestyle modifications before you have to go to pharmaceuticals or, or how do you balance that?
1: That's a great question. So lifestyle modifications are number one, always, always, always.
0: Ahead of pharmaceuticals. Ahead
1: of everything. Wow. If you come in and you tell me, you know, I've been smoking for X number of years and you're overweight and you don't exercise, I'm not going to give you a pill. I'm going to tell you You need to quit smoking. And I'm going to give you tools on how, because I think that's another thing that that we run into. We tell people, oh, you better quit smoking. But it's very difficult to do so. And if you don't have a physician or a counselor and a plan in place, in addition to, you know, they can use Wellbutrin or they can use Chantix. There's medications that they can give you, Nicorette gum, nicotine replacement. But you still need a plan in place. And it's very difficult to do so. I think that it's important to be supportive of your patient, not just in telling them, oh, this is how you need to change your behaviors, but giving them practical ways to do it. Because saying to someone, oh, you need to go climb this mountain. I mean, is it possible? Sure. Is it probable? Absolutely not. Because you haven't given them a framework in order to get there. And when it looks so daunting... You know, every journey starts with one foot in front of the other, but when you think about it and you're only seeing the destination, it can seem insurmountable. And so people then, you know, become discouraged and they don't move forward. But, you know, the first thing that I counsel all of my patients on is lifestyle modifications because that can do a great deal. Regardless of whether you end up needing medication later on, it's still the best thing that you can do for yourself. So even if you do ultimately need medicine for your hypertension later on, I'm still going to counsel you on exercise, on a low-sodium diet, on making sure that you're eating things appropriately, on cutting down your caffeine, on whatever it is. I'm always going to counsel lifestyle modifications first, period, and end of story. Medicines will come in after that when lifestyle modifications don't end up controlling the situation, but it's always going to be lifestyle modifications first.
0: So have you found that other doctors, te- I, I know I'm asking you to speak on behalf of other people. So I, I understand if, you, if you're cautious about it, but do you find that that opinion is prevalent in, in the medical community or do you think that some people jump to their prescription pad too quickly?
1: So I think that, you know, I think maybe I'm coming into medicine at a point where there's been a lot more focus on, you know, okay. on, on using lifestyle modifications first, because it for me, and at least from the mentors that I have, and even from the colleagues that I have, those are the things that are always counseled first. The problem that you end up seeing is, you know, I work primarily right now in inpatient medicine, and if you're admitted as an inpatient, you know, it's serious enough that having gone to your, you know, your doctor's visit in an outpatient setting is not sufficient. You've come through the emergency room, or you've come as a direct referral from your doctor because you're too sick right now um, to deal with whatever's going on. But it's still going to be I'm going to stabilize you. I'm going to get you healthy enough for discharge. And then I'm still going to counsel whether I have to send you home on insulin or not. I'm still going to tell you, you need to exercise. You need to eat right. You need to moderate your sugar intake. You need to make sure that you're paying attention to all of those things because it's so important, not just for the condition that you have, but also in preventing any new conditions from developing as well. Exactly. Exactly but can, can I say one more thing about the pharmaceutical industry?
0: Absolutely. You can say anything you want to about the pharmaceutical industry.
1: So I think that, you know, public opinion, um, obviously, you know, they, they, people have sort of felt like doctors might've been in the pocket of big pharma. Big pharma is a, is a term that you hear. And like I said, you know, for me, I'm coming in at a different point in time, but for me, I do feel like One, you know, we do need the pharmaceutical industry. We do need the medications and the drugs that they produce. And it does take an exorbitant amount of money to get one drug from the trial phase into actual, you know, rotation with patients. And I do understand the amount of money that goes into the research and the development of these things, particularly you know, I have a sensitivity towards the rare and orphan diseases as they're called because of my mother. And so
0: absolutely yeah.
1: illnesses that aren't big blockbusters, like high cholesterol, high blood pressure, you know, those are money makers because everybody ends up having it. If it's particularly if you eat a Western, not Western, an American
0: yeah. diet.
1: And I'm the first one to love fried everything. So I'm not, I'm not <laughs> judging anyone here. Uh, you're lying if you say fried things don't taste good because <laughs> they do. But, um, we need to keep in mind that we do need pharmaceutical companies to work with us in concert. At the same time, I do think that a lot of hospitals have made genuine efforts over the last several years to limit the amount of possible or perceived influence that pharmaceutical companies can have on us. So, For myself, even when I was going to conferences in the past, you know, they wouldn't allow pharmaceutical companies to sponsor, you know, super fancy dinners all the time or to be constantly having access to doctors and things like that. You had to have specific meetings. It had to be about a particular reason. And so they're trying to make a point of saying, you know, whatever your medication or your drug is, I'm going to evaluate it based on its merits. But it's not going to be based on, you know, are we friends? Did you give me something? Right. You know, and so. Doctors now having to disclose conflicts of interest or if they're on a board of something or if they're doing...
0: Or where it, their income is from, correct? A lot of people are requesting right, that now.
1: Right. So that's where the conflict of interest comes into and they have to declare, you know, I was on the board of this or I gave a talk about this or I, you know, have done whatever in support of a particular organization. And that's not necessarily demonizing anyone either. It's just saying, right. yes, I spoke in favor of something because you can have a, a medication and believe in it. Absolutely. And, and say, yes, I think that this is you know for this particular patient population is going to be you know something that i think is beneficial but i don't see anyone um or you know at least in my experience and again i can only speak for myself but from my colleagues from the hospitals that i've worked in uh, i haven't seen anyone that i felt at any point in time was unduly influenced by outside pharmaceutical companies or you know Because they gave you something or because they tried, you know, just because they were there did not mean that it was influencing your choice in terms of how you were managing your patient. That is
0: incredibly encouraging to hear because I think that, you know, the opposite picture gets painted so much in people's minds that aren't there every day. So to hear that people are actually attempting to to do the right thing in in those scenarios is incredibly refreshing. So for the guests that are or for the fans that are listening Um, I say guests. I was in the service industry forever. Everybody's a guest. Um, But for the fans that are listening, do you recommend them asking their doctors like, hey, these are all the prescriptions I'm on. Could you tell me if you're getting compensation for prescribing any of these? Is that a question that people should ask?
1: I mean, the thing is that none of us are really getting compensation from what we prescribe. So you can you can ask I mean if you And want. this is
0: something I don't know obviously sure. you know, being in nursing school I don't know prescription how that works and everything so
1: Sure. So for us prescribing if if there's any limitations on our prescribing it's much more dictated by your insurance company because a lot of times there's a medication that I want to give to you and then it's like oh that's non-formulary we need to make sure that we get approval the insurance company has to tell us and that for me is much more frustrating than anything because no one from a pharmaceutical company has sat there in my ear telling me you have to give this or not, because I don't care what they have to say. Okay. Your medication is here. It either works or it doesn't. I don't care if you built a new wing at the hospital I'm working at. If I think that your <laughs> medication is swill, I'm not going to prescribe it. Yeah. Period. End of story. And I don't care. And I think a lot of doctors operate that way as well. Um because we all get into this for patient care. You don't spend half a million dollars and you know the better part of 10 to 15 years of your life devoted to this profession just for the privilege of treating patients to then have someone else come and tell you, oh, you should give this medication or not. That's what insurance companies do. They're the ones that end up telling us, oh, you can give this medication or not. And so I think that's where some of that frustration comes in. Um, but for me, I've never felt restricted by a pharmaceutical company. I've absolutely felt restricted by an insurance company.
0: So, all right, well, let's actually go on that because that brings up a good question. What would you recommend people doing who are having difficulties navigating the insurance landscape? I mean, if people, if, if they go to their doctor and their doctor says, hey, this is the medication that I think that would be the most beneficial to you, but unfortunately your insurance carrier doesn't cover it, where do you go from there?
1: So I think the beauty of our pharmaceutical companies right now is that we have multiple, multiple um avenues to choose from. And we have multiple drugs to treat a particular condition. Uh, When I've run into situations where I felt that there was one best drug where this one particular thing would be like the only, only, only option. And that came more into play um, when I was dealing with cancer patients and they have very sort of, um, you know, if you have a particular mutation and it only responds to this one thing, or there's only one drug on the market, period, end of story, that that works with it. I've actually found pharmaceutical companies um, to be quite helpful in the sense that they do compassionate care, or they'll work with you to try and get access to it, or at least you can appeal the insurance company, and if you give, you know, it doesn't always work, but I've definitely seen it work, where when you have enough compelling evidence to say that a patient really needs something and it's not frivolous, you know, more often than not, it has worked out. Has it also not worked out? Yes. Um, and that's when you kind of like rage against the sky and, and you don't right. really have a whole lot of options. But at the same time, I think that's another arena where like social workers who are another, you know.
0: Unsung heroes.
1: Unsung I mean, heroes, I wish there was a better word. I'm pretty sure they're all hiding angel wings underneath their work attire (laughs) because I don't know where I would be. They're amazing people.
0: They're amazing people. I, I mean, almost every single one that I've met is just like, oh, you're doing what? Like this, you, you spend how many hours a day helping people doing this? It's it's unbelievable the the, the things that they do and, and what they're able to accomplish.
1: It's To me, it's incredible and it's invaluable because I've seen so many people who have come into dire situations yeah. that have literally, they see no way up or out and literally... Social workers make miracles happen. I don't even know what they do or where they get it from. Yeah, so. because I
0: mean, they, they really are the people who take care of human beings that fall through the cracks in the system. And, and you know, when you have systems that are this big and deal with these many human beings, people are going to fall through the cracks and they're the ones that are down there
1: Catching wet, ready them.
0: and willing and able to catch them. And it's amazing. I was actually, um, this is a very encouraging conversation to hear you speak of these things in in such a positive light because we don't really hear it too much. It was it was sort of funny. Last summer, I took a class in American politics um, as part of my co-requisites for my bachelor's degree later on, and I found myself in a debate where I had to argue for the pro side of big pharma, and this was before I had started my nursing curriculum, or perhaps a semester after, and I was amazed just by standing up in front of the classroom to go on pro pharma debate. I mean, people were looking at me like, Oh, this guy, he's going to, he's going to tell us that the pharmaceutical industry is good and all this. You know what I mean? There's just mm-hmm. that, like that underlying sort of look across everybody. That's like, Oh, what's this guy going to say? But when I started researching it and, and I, I agree with everything that you said hundred percent because the cost of research and development of a new drug to treat something, the trials, the, the the licensing the the red tape you have to cut through i mean it costs millions and hundreds millions of and, millions i mean to to bring a drug to market is just unbelievable and this is the thing that people don't realize most drugs never make it
1: most never they make it they spend
0: all like you said hundreds of millions of dollars and what i don't want to quote a, a, an incorrect percentage but i was amazed it was like I think that it was in the single digits of the percentage of drugs that they, from starting to develop to the ones that hit market, is it, it, I, I couldn't believe how small it was. So they are forced to to have a business model that stays in business so that we can keep getting drugs that we need. Right. They have to recoup the losses from the ninety that didn't work on the ten that did. I mean, you just have to. It, it's math, and. Once I realized that and I started really looking into it and, and don't get me wrong, like there's definitely things that we could all do better. There's, oh, there's things that the pharmaceutical course, companies could do better and the, the healthcare system could do better and everything. But in general, I didn't feel like I didn't feel like the alarms that were going off by a lot of people were warranted. You know what I mean? It just it, mm-hmm. it didn't seem as bad when I started doing the research and looking into it. It didn't seem as bad as I thought. So it's it's really cool to hear you validate that point of view. So,
1: and I think also, you know, obviously, whatever administration is in power has a great, you know, impact on the FDA. But at least when I was doing research, um, you know, the FDA came in and they audited us regularly. And those are some of the most thorough people you've ever met. Like, no stone is left unturned. Every I is dotted, every T is crossed, every discrepancy is unearthed, found, and brought to light. And so, These people are there. Their task, their whole job is to make sure that they're not bringing things that are unsafe to market. Do things happen? Of course they do. But oftentimes you find those in phase four trials, which we rarely do. So you've got phase one, two and three trials, which is usually what brings something to market. Unless there's an early stopping rule, like in the case of when um, AZT was being tested for HIV and it was so uh, wildly successful that they felt it would be unethical to withhold life-saving treatment from people in order to go through the full process. So on those rare occasions when a drug is so... Uh, demonstrably successful versus placebo, they will allow that to come to market because it means that, you know, to give someone else a placebo would be to, to literally uh, be detrimental to their health. But for the most part, the FDA is very strict and they're very stringent with the, with the policies that they have in place. And so, you know, I feel confident at least, even if a pharmaceutical company is pushing forward a drug that isn't necessarily great, it's not going to make it to market majority of the time can anything happen can something slip through the cracks of course it can but for the most part you know things don't get approved versus do getting approved and then when they do find that there's you know something going on later on they will do a recall you know they will ensure that it's taken off the market or that they put black box warnings to make sure that whatever the dangerous interaction is that they've noticed is at least brought to the consumers and the physicians and the nurses and the medical community's attention so that they can be aware of it. So, you know, there are certain medications that you give for people that have autoimmune diseases that can ultimately end up, um, you know, causing some other issue down the line. So, you know... If you give an immunomodulator or you give something that's suppressing the immune system, sure, something else can pop up because your immune system isn't functioning in the same way. Yes, it is a possibility. It's a rare possibility, but it happens. But they will bring that to your attention and then they'll give you the option. You discuss with your medical provider, you know, is the risk worth the reward? And so... I think that it's really important that we keep an open and honest, you know, line of communication so that we keep everyone informed and then everyone can make the best decisions that they can for themselves and for their patients, for their family members, for whomever it is that's involved.
0: I, I agree 100 percent. I think that the communication that you, that you touched on was great. Um,
1: oh, so sorry. Go, other, go ahead. Go ahead. One other thing that I would say to patients um, Not necessarily in an emergency situation, because you're usually kind of scared, kind of panicked, and you just, you know, sort of need immediate help. But if you're following up with your primary care provider, or if they've referred you to a specialist for a particular condition or illness, I know you go home, you maybe do your own research, you maybe talk to family members or friends, write down your questions. Because in that moment when you get in there with that doctor, oftentimes everything kind of escapes you in the moment. Absolutely. And so then sometimes you might get home afterwards and you're like, oh, man, I didn't get answers to this or I didn't know about this. And so it still leaves you feeling a little bit unsure. So as you know that you're going into, you know, a situation with your medical care provider, even in the ED, if that's the case, if you have time or, you know whatever it is, write down your questions, put them on your phone, ask for a piece of paper and a pen and write them down so that you're not worrying about remembering everything and you have it there and then you can say to the doctor or the nurse, okay, you know, these are the concerns that I have. Can you please help me address them?
0: I am so glad that you brought that up because this is something I had firsthand experience with where I dropped the ball on that exact thing. So I was having lower back pain forever, which, you know, is pretty much everybody does and, you know, from doing dumb stuff when I was a young guy, you know, I mean, like it's, you know, for, for those of you that know me, you know, surprise. But so I had two herniated discs. One of them was compressing a nerve root at L4, L5, and it was just causing me like, or L5, S1, I apologize. And um, it was just causing me a ton of pain compressing that nerve root. And so I went into the doctor to ask about it and, and talk about it. And all of a sudden I'm sitting there in front of the doctor and he's like, well, what's the problem? And I was just like. It just wasn't there. Like mm-hmm. like all of my questions, I left that office and I was like, oh, there was like six other things I wanted to ask about and I completely forgot to do it. And something as simple as getting a pen and a piece of paper and writing down the real questions that you have about what's going on with your body, just invaluable. It's just like such a good idea to do. So I'm glad you brought that up because I, I literally have been burned by that myself before. And I think it was only about three or four years ago that that happened. Mm-hmm. So... The question that I was going to ask you before was, as a doctor now, how has being a doctor or going through med school influenced your life personally as far as like the decisions that you make about your own health? Have you ramped up like a healthy lifestyle or or attempted to or are there things that are different about the way you navigate health and fitness and sleep and everything else now than you used to because you've went through medical school?
1: So that's that's so that's such an incredible question, because I think that for doctors in particular, we live in a paradox where we know all these things. You know, you should get eight hours of sleep. You should exercise. You should eat well. You should you know make sure that you have time to socialize with family. You should take care of your mental health. But then particularly the first couple of years of, of medical training don't necessarily afford you the time and the luxury to engage in all of the things that you know are good for you and that you would recommend to your patients and so what you
0: you said that in such a politically correct way I gotta tip my hat to you (laughs) I can I can tell you're like uh I wish but let me tell you about med school and working 21 hour days six days in a row
1: (laughs) I mean legally we work 80 hours a week Right. Thank you, ACGME. <laughs> 80, 80, hours maximum. That's no, it. no more. No more ever, <laughs> ever. Um, so I think that, you know, uh, it's like anything you have a learning curve. And so, you know, the first time I saw a patient who lost their leg, you know, at 54 years old to diabetes, I was like, I'm not drinking soda like ever again. Yeah.
0: There goes that.
1: But then it was 2 a.m., after like my fourth surgery and I was thirsty. So then I got that Coca-Cola. So, you know, you, you, you,
0: (laughs) everything in moderation, you,
1: you have these lapses, you know, that are sort of, um, that you have to adjust to. So it's interesting. The hospital that I work in now is part of a sort of growing national movement in different hospitals to reduce the amount of unhealthy food and products that are available. So my hospital does not only carries, um, either, uh, you know, it's like Coke Zero or Pepsi Zero or, you know, it's all sugar free um, soda products and they provide a lot of water and seltzers and, and other things like that. There's no fried foods anymore. So there's no French fries. Uh, there's no mozzarella sticks. There's no full fat potato chips. None of those things are available in the hospital. And so if you. If people will not make healthy decisions for themselves, if you limit their (laughs) options, um, I have no choice but to eat a salad because, you know, that's what's available to me right now. Um, And that can be a little bit draconian when all you really want is some French fries in that moment. But, you know, I can at least appreciate what the sentiment is behind that. And so for me, I definitely during my third and fourth year of medical school, I started cooking more at home. I started trying to eat healthier because there's nothing like seeing someone who's, you know, close enough to you in age with a significant medical problem to make you be like wow, this could be me. You know, it's another thing when you have a 98 year old patient who's like lived their lives and, you know, not, not that you want anyone to be in the hospital and suffering, but that's a very different scenario in terms of what you're going to do preventatively than it is when you have someone who's, you know, 35 dealing with a medical condition that is treatable or at least modifiable. And so it certainly made me want to eat better and, you know, change my lifestyle habits a little bit go to the gym more or like take the stairs more or walk more or you know watch tv less like we ever get to watch tv but (laughs) but you but you get what i mean so so no i think that absolutely seeing um I think learning in a book is very different than when you see the consequences of what those actions mean in someone else. And I think that for me was probably one of the biggest motivators for me to start making different decisions and
0: 100 percent and
1: inculcating different habits into my own life.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I tell you what, of everything you've said of all the advice you've given, what you said about food and the fact that there are hospitals and networks that are attempting to have healthy food in hospitals. That made me happier than anything else that's come out of your mouth. I mean, for, for for fans of this show, for people listening, there will be a day when I get on my soapbox about nutrition. That day is not today, uh, but I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And it's nice to see the hospitals taking that initiative because, unfortunately, I believe there's some private hospitals and for-profit hospitals that – can sometimes that they want it comes from a place of good intentions where they want the person that comes to the hospital to be as comfortable as possible. They want them to enjoy their stay, they want them to be in as little pain as possible. But I feel like they're sort of flirting with that line of yes, we want people to be comfortable and not be in pain, but th- this isn't a hotel. You know, this Mm -hmm. this is a hospital like we're not going to give you cheese sticks and fried chicken and Cokes like while you're in here taking insulin for diabetes. Like, unfortunately, I I think that it it makes me very happy to hear you say that there are institutions that are attempting to at least start to look at that problem the right way and, and acknowledge that problem and start to navigate it because I... Like I said, I won't get up on my soapbox about nutrition <laughs> right now. Like we'll just we'll just leave that go. However, uh, that that makes me very happy to hear that. Well, listen, we can go ahead and wrap this thing up. Is there is there anything else that you'd like to say? Like based on what we talked about, is there any advice you want to give people or tips or tricks on? I don't know. You're you're a doctor now. You've been you've been a doctor for so long, <laughs> so Doctor Medina. You've been a doctor so for long. so long. Like you've got to have some words of wisdom to leave these people with.
1: Thousands of years. Thousands is what it feels like. Um, a
0: lifetime. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Lifelong learner over here. Um, so, you know, I think I think I sprinkled it out, you know, throughout um, our discussion a little bit, you know, making sure that you write down your questions ahead of time so that you use the time that you have with your physician, you know, effectively, particularly in this age of managed care where you only have maybe 15 or 20 minutes with your doctor. You want to use them as effectively as possible. So if you're doing your research at home or you have concerns, you know, making sure that you bring that list of questions is important. Bringing your list of medications or bringing the actual pill bottles with you is so invaluable to us. And I think that that's 100% um, effective for us in terms of making sure that we're, we're doing our best by you in terms of our medical management. Right. I think that utilizing the resources, if you are an inpatient particularly, you know, a lot of institutions have social workers and they can help you navigate some of those really nebulous uh, areas of health insurance as a, you know, newly minted physician. But as someone who's had health insurance, I still can't tell you the nuances that are involved in any of these things. I have or, no
0: idea how it works. No, it, it's
1: it's a very, very amorphous blob of information. And. Um, And so in terms of trying to navigate through that that web of information and, you know, whatever it is that you're trying to do, it literally still seems, you know, like this veiled, shaded secret society to me (laughs) because I still have no idea, you know, why I need to call this person and get some person elsewhere to justify me giving a particular medication or, you know, to only give my patient 20 physical therapy visits when they clearly have, you know, uh, physical deficits that require more intensive physical therapy or whatever it is. And so utilizing your social workers when you're in the hospital, I think is invaluable and more than anything, also just keeping up with your doctor. I got a lot of people who are like, Oh, I haven't gone to the doctor for five years, 10 years, 15 years. Um, And it really hurts me when I discover something, you know, that I could have helped you long ago. And now that we're here and you're with me now, you know, I'm still going to help you, obviously, to, to the best of my ability. But now we're dealing with a much bigger situation. Right. And so if you keep up with your health maintenance, and I know that it can be difficult if you lose your job and your health insurance was through your employer or, you know, if you have Medicaid, I know that, you know. Um, Sometimes a lot of providers don't take Medicaid or the the waits can be very long or, you know, they're in a location that's not convenient for you. And and there's a lot of red tape and a lot of obstacles to you, you know, actually fulfilling those things to the best of your ability. Try because I promise you that prevention is so much more valuable to all of us well, than it is well, to treat the condition what's the
0: saying an ounce of prevention, an ounce of prevention is worth, worth, worth a pound, the pound, of, of, pound cure. of cure or yeah, treatment we, we, we say that we say that all the time and and you know it's uh, without opening up another can of worms i think that that's actually very good advice is i mean i personally come from a small town and there's just so much pride and there's so much ego and there's so much i don't need to see a doctor i'm fine quit worrying about me and i'm invincible blah 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 and then you know you dropped out of a heart attack when you're 60 you know it's it, there's there there's so many people that have obvious ailments that have been bugging them forever and they just like absolutely refuse to go to the doctor and and and, it, and sometimes it's such an easy fix you know it's something that that could be taken care of or at least managed or helped you know there you can have improvement in it and it's uh, it's sad to see. So, that, that is good advice. There you have it. From a doctor, <laughs> go see a doctor. Like, once in a while. You know, it doesn't have... Even if it's not like every... Like, if you haven't been to see a doctor in over five years, just go see one. You know, get blood work done. Just see how you're doing. So... I think that's great advice. I think that'll help a lot of people out. Dr. Shanoa Medina for 29 days now. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And I think this is going to be one of the most helpful episodes that, that that I've aired for for people. I mean, this is invaluable information that everybody should know. So I appreciate you sharing it with me.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right. Until next time. See you guys later. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you guys so much for joining me this week. Again, thank you to Dr. Medina. She did such a great job. I hope that you found that information as valuable as I did. There were a lot of things I personally took away from this and will certainly use moving forward with my own life and and hopefully my loved ones as well. So a huge thank you to her, and please join me next week. I'm going to be talking with Scott Wiener. He's the owner of Scott's Pizza Tours from Brooklyn, New York, and we had a great conversation. We got to sit down in a pizza restaurant and speak about the art and the science of pizza making. And when I tell you this guy knows his stuff, I was blown away by the amount of knowledge that went into this. So uh, he's going to be joining me next week, and until then, thank you guys so much for joining me, and I'll see you soon.